Six circles of relationship formed around Jesus in his time on earth. In the outermost circle, there were the crowds, tens of thousands of people curious to learn more about the prophet from Galilee. Next, the 5,000 who journeyed out from their villages in desperate need of something from Jesus. Then the 70 who served Jesus' ministry. They wanted to do something for him. There were the 12 who Jesus called to leave their jobs and the worlds they knew to follow him. Then Peter, James, and John, who fully embraced the joy of Jesus as well as his sufferings. And finally, the one, John, who sat beside him at the Last Supper. He listened more closely than any other and recognized the Savior when no one else did. What can we learn from these circles of relationship about how we can get closer to Jesus today? Jesus is always calling you closer. When Jesus first approached me that day, I assumed that he had just another short assignment in mind for me. Maybe he wanted me to visit another town to prepare for his coming or something. But no, this call was something entirely different. First of all, this was not a short-term assignment. He didn't want me to just take a leave of absence. No, he wanted me to make a whole life commitment. From this moment, I had one task, one purpose commanded by his two unforgettable words. Follow me. Happy that you are here with us today. We're picking up in part four of our series called The One Jesus Loves. And if you missed last week, I would encourage you to, uh, you can hop on our app and you can uh, actually listen to last week's message or you can go to our YouTube channel. Uh, Dr. Robert Crosby, who wrote the book, was with us last week and I just think did a wonderful job talking about the position of the 70. But maybe this is your first time here and you're hopping in and it's always weird. You hop in on like part four of a series and you're like, I have no idea what they're talking about, but we are talking about the circles of relationship with Jesus, and it's our heart and it's our desire that everybody would make a conscious effort to draw closer to Jesus. All of us, regardless of if we're in the crowds, that's okay, just not to stay there. But the crowds is a place of listening and, 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 and watching what Jesus is doing, but then we have the 5,000, which is just just a circle closer, and that's a place where we receive uh, healing and feeding from Jesus, and it's based off the miracle where he fed the 5,000, and then last week uh, we talked about uh, the 70, which is a place of serving and working, and today we're, we're to the 12, and this is the real jump. If I'm being honest with you, it's, it's, real, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to be kind of in the crowds. You're just listening, you're just watching, you're just checking out what this Jesus may look like. And then all of a sudden, we, when we move to the 5,000, it's, it's an easier step too because we're getting fed and we're getting healed. How many of you would take some feeding and some healing right now, amen? Uh, I know that there are a lot of needs that are already, always represented in our church and we're constantly praying for the needs of our church. But this is a place that a lot of people, they move from listening and watching that now all of a sudden Jesus is feeding me and he's healing me. And then all of a sudden, the next step's a little harder, but a lot of us are good at serving and working. But today we're talking about the 12, the place of following and leaving it all behind. And when I was preparing this week, it, it, it brought me back to a moment, and, and I was in high school, probably freshman or sophomore year, and, and we took a wonderful trip to Carowinds. Um, 
a wonderful place just north of us. And uh, if you've ever seen the giant swing at Carowinds, you know, the thing that they just pull you all the way. Has anybody ever, are you, has anybody ever done that before? That's good. A few of us in the room, not many of us in the room, because most of us, we, we may think that that sounds like a great idea until all of a sudden we see the individuals being harnessed to this giant swing and being pulled all the way back at their own free will, mind you, and being pulled all the way back and then having to push the release and swinging and wondering if they're going to survive this. Well, I don't know if I was smart in that moment or I was just, you know, the average uh, male high school student. Um, Those are the two options there. But uh, I decided to to hop on that with a couple of friends, and I remember the panic as we just began to pull all the way back. But once you make that decision to be harnessed in, there's no going back. And I believe it's the same with us, with Jesus, that at this point, when we move from this place of just serving and working, that all of a sudden when we're moving into this, in this position of following him and leaving everything behind, there's no turning back. Because I believe that when we make that commitment, we're going to find fulfillment in our lives. We're going to find purpose in our lives that we can't experience just in the place of the 70. We can't experience in the place of the 5,000. We can't experience in the crowds but it's going to cost us everything. And so our text this morning is going to be found in Mark chapter 3. And really all this is, is is, uh, it's the calling of the disciples. You know, for many of us, and, and, and I've read the Gospels so many times over the course of my life and have done studies, but I didn't, until doing some research and reading through Dr. Crosby's book, realize that at this moment when Jesus is calling the disciples is actually kind of a halfway point in his ministry, that on the timeline of Jesus' ministry here on this earth, he was doing a lot of teaching and miracles by himself and until this point. And we're going to pick up in Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, And that he may send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who actually he gave the name Sons of Thunder. You just wonder about their personalities a little bit. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Altheus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're here with us today. We thank you that you're calling us, all of us, into a closer and a deeper relationship with you. Would you challenge our hearts, challenge our minds, our thoughts, and may we make a conscious effort to pursue you. In your name we pray. Amen. So here we find this this moment in Jesus' life and his ministry of where he's calling the 12. He's he's had the crowds, he's had the 5,000, he's had the 70. Now he's calling the 12 so that they would have authority to cast out demons. That they would actually begin preaching in this moment. A lot of times we, we, we look, at least for me personally, I look at uh, scripture in this story and I... 
And I feel like the disciples' ministry really doesn't pick up until Jesus dies and he's, and he's raised. But if, if you look at this text, he actually calls and appoints them now. And they began to preach and to cast out demons, demons because the closer we get to Jesus, the more authority and power we feel and can experience. Because he's calling us closer and the closer we draw, our relationship begins to change. And so should our life. But there's a scripture in Matthew 4.19 that I feel like really just encompasses this whole thought. Because he looks and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come, follow me. Jesus is ushering these words. He doesn't say, hey, follow me and I'll make you a leader of people. See, I think if I'm being real honest, sometimes in the church world, we get this off a little bit. Because it's all about leadership. But really, leadership can't be exhibited unless we learn to follow. And here we, we see this as Jesus is calling the disciples from where they were to where he wants them to be. And he says, come and follow me. I wrote this, following is the most underrated form of leadership in existence. I don't believe we'll ever be able to lead if we can't learn to follow. See, if we desire to draw closer to Jesus, we've got to learn how to follow Jesus. And I think that sometimes we baby this out too much and, well, we just make a decision and everything's great. Well, really, this is about a pursuit. If you're married in the room, you didn't just say, I do, and it stops there. Am I right? <laughs> Sorry, I'll, I'll be 11 years in here in a couple of weeks, and I'm still learning that I've got to continue to draw closer to my wife because if I still wanted our relationship to be where it was 11 years ago, we'd be lacking a lot of things in our relationship. We've learned how to communicate. We've learned how to press through and link arms together when we have to go through the trenches of life. We've learned how to pray first instead of arguing first, you know? You, you, you learn these things as you go through life. You learn how to parent because nobody wrote a book that really makes any sense and tells us how to do it. Some of your kids are too grown and you forgot. <laughs> Telling us how to raise our kids. No, I'm just kidding. But we've got to learn how to follow See, our first point today is that in the 12, we follow Jesus to the place of leaving all. See, we have to learn to follow Jesus, but it's this sacrificial place we have to follow him to. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is, is where this uh, rich young ruler shows up to Jesus and he, he begins, Jesus, I want to follow you. Uh, I, I want to pursue you. I, I want all this. And what does he say And and, and Mark 10, 21. Jesus looks at him and loves him. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. See, church, this is a dangerous circle for us to step into. Because the moment we say yes, Jesus, I really want to follow you. I don't just want to make a comfort decision so I feel better about my eternity, but I want to follow you and live my purpose that you've created me for on this planet. We are strapping in the harness and they're pulling us back in the swing. 
And just a side note on that story, I could not be the one to push the button. We did survive uh, in case you needed to know the end of the story, but I could not push the button. Somebody else had to do it. But we hesitate in making this jump. Why? Because when we really begin to dig into Scripture, when we really begin to have this desire to draw closer to Jesus, we realize that he's asking more of our life than really oftentimes what we're willing to give up. It's a hard place. Jesus wants us to be all in. For all of you people who are fans of the university in the upstate, You get that. Can't even quote him. Quote Jesus. And I began to look into this whole idea of followership. Did you know that that's actually like a leadership term now? Followership. Forbes magazine actually wrote uh, several really good articles as I was doing the study this week on followership. Followership is actually how good of a leader you are that people would want to follow you. And so I just kind of wrote this question, is Jesus worth following? Because if we're going to go all in, if we're going to move to this closer place with him where we have to leave everything, I think that this is a valid point for us and a valid question for us to explore. Is is Jesus really worth following? And I'll quote Forbes magazine on this. Because these are the top four things that a secular publication writing about the business world would say are the four top qualities of followership. Number one is trust. Through everyday behavior, these are not my words, these are Forbes magazine. Through everyday behavior, followership requires that the leader provides evidence that they can be trusted, that they will do what they say. Number two is stability. Leaders with strong followership remain calm in the face of panic and give a sense of confidence to those around them. Hmm. Number three, compassion. Strong followership leaders have unrelenting passion for people and show empathy when those folks are enduring hard times. And number four, hope. Followership requires that the leader has unwavering belief that their product or service will not only succeed, but will change lives. Now, I don't know if that person who wrote this article in Forbes had a spiritual encounter and has a walk with Jesus, but all I could read when I'm reading this on followership is I'm like, this is Jesus. Jesus is the one we can trust. Jesus is the one who is more stable than any of us. In the face of the storm, what does he say? Peace be still. He quiets it. He was taking a nap in the middle of the storm. He shows compassion. When we keep getting it wrong, he still loves us. And he's the only bit of hope that any of us would ever need in our life. Thank you, Forbes magazine, for confirming that Jesus is worth following. Thank you that his businesses around the world are trying to ask this question, how do we get more people to follow us and buy in? Jesus had it figured out the whole time. You can trust me. I will be stable when you are not. I will show compassion where you are, and I will be the only hope that you ever need to live for. F.R. Maltby said this, Jesus promised his disciples three things. They would be completely fearless, 
they would be absurdly happy and they would be in constant trouble. <laughs> I'm fearless, I'm happy, but oh no. <laughs> this place of following Jesus, this all-in moment, leaving everything behind, it's a challenging step for us. It's a moment where we, we are jumping off the diving board and we, we may not be able to see where we're going to land, but we're trusting him. See, knowing the cost for many of us deters us from drawing closer. Because we, the longer we're around Jesus, the, the, the more we, time we spend with him, we really begin to recognize that this place of all in, this place of leaving everything behind, is not an easy moment. It's actually quite a difficult moment. But something happens when we begin to make this decision to follow him. See, we begin to leave our plans for our future, and we have to embrace his plans for our future. I spent this morning with our, uh, with our middle school girls' small group, and they began to ask the, the, some questions. I had told them I would come up for uh, Q&A, and so for you parents of these middle school girls, God bless you. Um, you know, I was expecting to ask, like, answer some, some just shallow questions, and they're asking me about theological beliefs and what do I think is the greatest theological challenge to our culture today, and I'm like, it's a little early for this. Somebody pass me another cup of coffee, you know. But one of the questions was, when did you know that you were supposed to be a pastor? How did you know this? And I began to reflect and got a little emotional in that moment because I remember hearing the voice of God saying, when are you going to stop running? When are you, you going to give it all up and really embrace what I have for your life? And I don't just believe he asked that question to, to pastors, but to teachers, to business leaders, to all of us on our journey of faith. When are you going to stop running and embrace everything he has for you? When are you going to reach this moment of saying, I'm all in, Jesus. I'm going to leave my plans behind, and I'm going to embrace your plans. Because that's hard. Because culture sometimes would, would define his plans as unsuccessful. But the only measuring stick for success I want in my life is the one that Jesus has exhibited. And that's how will my life make an eternal impact. But we have to begin to exchange our plans for his plans. We have to leave people and practices in our life that draw us away from God. And follow what will bring us closer. I remember there was a season of my life in college where I just had some friends that were just not a good influence on me, and I had to make a decision that I was going to sever some relationships. And how many of you know when you have to look at your friends in the face and say, hey, we can't hang out anymore, I can't be around you, that normally doesn't go over very well. And I remember having friends knocking at my door. I'm in my dorm room, and I would not answer the door because I knew that the moment I opened the door... I was leaving room for the enemy to continue to rob what God intended for my life. Some of us, it's time to shut the door on some relationships. It's time to shut the door on some practices, some habits that we've just been okay with having. And maybe they're okay with being in the crowds. Maybe they're even okay in the, in the place of the 5,000. But as Jesus is drawing you closer, your life should start to look different. Peter fished again. 
But Peter wasn't, he wasn't, hey, Jesus, I'll listen to you while I'm casting my nets. He had to make a conscious decision that I'm going to leave my practices behind and I'm going to embrace everything that the Savior of the world has for me. That's a tough place of going all in to say things that may have been okay then are not okay now. And I'm not talking about is it sinful or not. There are just some things in our life that are not healthy for us. They're not drawing us closer to God, and it's time that we just shut it out. I'm not not trying to preach legalisms. I just think that there's some conscious things. There's some things in my life that I've had to cut out that are not sinful, but they're not good for me. It's okay. And yes, I could go over here and say, well, it's not sinful, so I can do it. Well, if it's keeping me from everything God has for my life, maybe. Maybe it it does become sin, because sin is anything that would separate us from God, and if it's separating me from God's best for my life, it may be sin for me. It may not be sin for you. But we have to hit this place of leaving it all behind. We have to leave the fears that we have that are holding us back and take bold steps of faith. Can you imagine being one of the disciples in this moment? You've, been, you've probably been in the crowds. You were, you, were, you were gathering around Jesus. You were watching Jesus. Now all of a sudden he pulls you out of the crowd and says, Hey, you're going to be one of my disciples. And oh, by the way, I need you to preach now. And I need you to cast out demons. <laughs> I don't know the last time you've been around a demon-possessed person. And don't look at your spouse right now. But I remember the first time, it was the first mission trip I took as a youth pastor. And there was a guy, we were in El Salvador, and this guy begins to make his way. He's foaming at the mouth. I mean, it is like, I've read about this in Scripture. I was not prepared for this moment. God, give me faith right now so that all of my teenagers don't question everything in life. But I still remember that moment. And the boldness that it took to confront the, the spiritual matters that a lot of times we may, not, we may not see with our earthly eyes. And then all of a sudden, there was some, some real spiritual stuff happening here. And I, probably much like the disciples, was terrified in that moment. But see, when we follow Jesus closer and we leave it all behind, it's leaving our fears behind. And it's saying, God, I'm going to embrace this bold step of faith. And if you've called me to do it, then you're going to meet me there. You're going to walk with me there. You're going to give me every bit of faith that I need for this journey and where you're taking me. There has to be this all-in desire, that moment that we're not playing games anymore. I don't know the personality of your kids, but with my kids, sometimes I have to have this light switch defining conversation. We're not playing anymore. You know, Have you ever had that? you got to make eye contact and you're like, we are not playing games anymore. Stop. Bedtime's the worst, you know. Jensen is like, how many times can I get out of bed until dad is just, the, the switch flips, you know. It's testing me. I'm raising myself. It's awesome. Sorry, mom and dad. But I look and it's almost every night. No more playing. No more games. Well, when we get to this moment, that's the same conversation that we have to have with ourselves that God wants us to have with him, that we're not playing games anymore. This is an all-in moment to where we're leaving it all behind to pursue everything he has for us.
Point number two today, second thing we learn in the 12, is that in the 12 we find ordinary people receive an extraordinary call from Christ. Matthew 4, 18 through 20, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers. They were Simon. His other name was Peter and Andrew, his brother. They were putting a net into the sea, so they were fishermen. Thanks for that clarification. Jesus said to them, follow me, I will make you fish for men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. I think the thing I love about the disciples is they were all ordinary people. And I think there's a reason that they were ordinary people. Because if Jesus found the elitist of that time, none of us could resonate with their stories. But for all of us, we find a place in this following Jesus closer because they were ordinary people who just said yes. See, we like to live in this foolish thought that we must have the top talent. We have to have the greatest ability or the largest influence to do something great for Jesus. But really, if you enjoy fishing, you're just as qualified. Or whatever it is that you enjoy in life. Here were just some brothers that were casting their nets and Jesus said, come, follow me and I will change your life. And I will change your perspective and I will, and I will give you purpose and I will call you to, to see things that you've never seen before. See, that same calling that was placed on the disciples then is placed on us now. An extraordinary call for ordinary people. John MacArthur wrote this. He said, and this is description of the disciples, they were perfectly ordinary men in every way. Not one of them was renowned for scholarship. They had no track record as orders or theologians. They were not outstanding because of any natural talents or intellectual abilities. On the contrary, they were all too prone to mistakes, misstatements, wrong attitudes, lapses of faith, and bitter failure. Most of us would fit right in. No one more so than the leader of that group, Peter. Even Jesus remarked that they were slow learners and somewhat spiritually dense. Church, it's okay. Wherever you are on this journey, whatever circle you find yourself in this morning, maybe you're in the crowd and you're just checking things out. Maybe, maybe you've been in the 70 and you've been working and you've been serving, but now Jesus is saying, hey, it's time to take another step closer. Leave it all behind because I have a calling on your life. Jesus is calling all of us. But most of the time we, we fall into this trap of, of connecting calling to our vocation. But I believe that there's, uh, we find four specific callings here as Jesus uh, when we're reading this narrative. And, and it's based from Matthew 16 verse 24. And most of you in the room have probably heard this verse over the years. But it says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, in this we find four callings, and the first is a call to intimacy. This one, when we read this, this verse, if anyone would come after me, drawing closer, this intimate place. See, this is a different call that the disciples were facing during this time because for all who would say, hey, I'm going to follow a rabbi, I'm, I'm, I'm going to connect, they would connect, if they were a disciple, they would connect to a teaching or they would connect to a cause, but Jesus was actually calling them to himself, to an intimate place. 
Jesus wasn't just calling them to sit around and hear him teach. Jesus was calling them to live life with him. To share life. And I don't know the last time you've had people living with you, but it can be messy having people live in your house. Living life with people has other components to it. If you're a college student, you know what it's like. You you live in a dorm room, and maybe you're guilty of leaving your stuff all over the place. But when you begin to live life with people, there's some, some rub. You can imagine that the disciples probably weren't at peace with each other all the time. My children are not at peace with each other all the time. And when you get in this close proximity, all of a sudden, you have these difficult moments. You have these moments of where somebody made a mess of themselves. Jesus is living life with them. So a lot of times, we don't want to draw to this intimate place. We we reject this calling of intimacy because we're afraid of the mess that's our own life and Jesus seeing it. But the reality is, he sees it already. And he's calling us to hit this intimate moment. He's not just saying, hey, I want your future. He says, I want your life. Will you draw closer to me, to this intimate spot? He's also calling us to humility. He says, deny yourself. Christ is not calling us to live this life of self-fulfillment, but rather self-denial. That we would deny our own desires, we would deny our own fulfillment, And it's this upside down where when we deny ourselves, we're actually more fulfilled. But when we pursue fulfillment, we always find ourselves empty. What does he say when when he's he's at the temple and and he says, come and, and drink of me and you will thirst no more. Why? Because when we're chasing things in this world that we may feel like is fulfillment for our life, it will always leave us empty. But when we deny ourselves and follow him to this place of humility, we'll always be fulfilled. C.S. Lewis wrote this, It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. When we will give ourselves up, Jesus will give us back in the way that he created and intended for us to be. The next is a call to serenity or peace. He says, take up your cross. You may say, Pastor, how is that peaceful? Well, finding serenity and peace in the good or the bad. See, he doesn't say if you'll be crushed by your cross. If you'll let your cross keep you down. If you'll let your cross defeat you. He says, if you will carry your cross. If you will pick up your cross. And so sometimes we lose sight of this because we allow a jobless situation or struggles in our marriage or frustrations with our kids or whatever emptiness you may and struggle and and tough road that you're walking through. We let our cross crush us. But Jesus says, will you carry it? Will you pick it up? Will you find my peace in your good times and your bad times? Then you'll begin to draw closer. In those moments, we begin to follow Jesus to this place of serenity, this place of peace and good times and bad. But we must pick up our cross and move forward. And we have the greatest example of all 
I could not even imagine my body being broken and bruised. I mean, I, I was giving Rob a, a hard time this morning. We're, we're limping in here playing a game of golf yesterday, you know. Jesus, he was beaten and broken, had every excuse to just lay there and let the cross beat him. But what did he do? He carried his cross. He picked it up and walked it out and set the example for all of us to follow. That when life gives us cards that we don't like and we don't want to handle and we're frustrated with and we can't figure out why God won't remove us from this season, well, maybe it's just time for us to carry our cross and move forward. And that in that call to finding peace in the good and bad, we're following Jesus to a place of leaving it all. See, that's a hard place to be. And the last is a call to loyalty. See, even the disciples had their own version of Jesus that they wanted him to be. See, many of us, we, we live in this spot. We have our own version of Jesus that we want him to look like and how we want him to fit our life. And, but the disciples were rebuked when they got it wrong. And we wonder why we keep hitting walls sometimes. Well, maybe it's because our version of Jesus is not the one that he truly is. But it's this call to loyalty. He wanted their obedience. For us, me as a leader, loyalty is one of my highest values. I can handle a little stupidity. I can handle a little goofiness. Will you be loyal to the mission God's given us? Will, be, will you be loyal to the vision God's given us? Not to us as people, but to the vision and the mission of the house. And if you'll be loyal, we'll trudge through the hardest of things. Because we'll lock arms because we know that there is a greater vision and a greater direction than even is on our own shoulders by ourselves. For most of us, when we look at our, our relationships, look at your spouse do you expect anything less than them to be loyal? When loyalty's missing, we have issues that we have to work through. And then the same in our relationship with Jesus. He's calling us to be loyal, to obey him, to follow him, and to leave it all behind. Dr. Crosby wrote this because I, I believe that these callings are very difficult it can be a little heavy even for a Sunday morning, but he wrote this. Jesus wasn't concerned about marketing for consumers. He was drawing a clear line in the sand for all who would be devoted followers. Jesus wasn't concerned about marketing for consumers because sometimes we boil Christianity, and we want Christianity to be attractive. We do because there's something that we believe in, and that's a higher purpose and a higher calling, but I would be misstepping if I told you that Christianity was always happy and always great and never had any issues. But sometimes that's the way we like to paint Jesus. Choose Jesus and you never have any struggle in your life again. No, it's really just choose Jesus and you'll never have to walk through struggles by yourself again. Jesus wasn't, wasn't trying to market himself for all the consumers. He was drawing a line in the sand and saying, will you do this? Will you choose this call of intimacy for your life? Will you choose humility? Will you choose serenity? Will you choose loyalty? Will you obey me regardless of what I ask you to do? 
And then point three, this is the final lesson, and this is a little, little lighter. In the 12, we find the way of Jesus is the way of joy. John 16, 24. This is the Last Supper. You can imagine life was pretty heavy for Jesus in this moment. But he looks at his disciples and he says this. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. See, joy is not merely an emotion. But joy is actually a discipline. Think about that for a second. We boil joy down to a a happy feeling. It's actually a discipline we have to choose for our life. We have to cultivate a a life of joy. We We have to exhibit disciplines and practices in our life to live a life of joy. Yet joy, unfortunately, is so hard for Christians to get. It's a fruit of the Spirit yet it's the one that's so easily neglected. If you don't believe me, just ask your your server on a Sunday afternoon how much they look forward to being scheduled on Sundays. And most of the time it's not because they're bummed out that they can't be in church, but it's that they have to deal with Christians. Because we so quickly can be the most critical, the grouchiest, the most complaining, the, the most demanding And this is where I would look and say, is your life reflecting what Jesus has called us to live? Because I believe if we're exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit in our life, we couldn't contain the byproduct of our life. We wouldn't have to have five easy steps to lead somebody to Christ because our life would be so attractive that people would want to follow after the same Jesus that we're following after. But we struggle with this. We struggle with living a life of joy. But I have a few things that would teach us how, to, how do we build this discipline of joy. Okay, so we've, we've followed Jesus to the place of leaving it all. And then all of a sudden we exhibit this extraordinary calling and we're ordinary people and now we're choosing to live a life of joy. And I have just a few here as we close. Number one is that joy reads... Psalm 119, 162 says this, I rejoice in your word like one who discovers a great treasure. Reading the scripture is an incredible source of joy for our life. A few of you are reading your Bible, that's great. Joy is found in reading the scriptures. Scripture is an incredible source for joy for our life. Many of us are struggling to live day by day, yet we continue to neglect the greatest instruction that we could ever find for our life. Like a great treasure. Joy sings. Some of you sing better than others. If you sing really well, please see Pastor Zach. If you don't, offer joyful noise before the Lord. But singing stirs something within us. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Be filled with the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. I don't know what your car looks like on the ride to work in the mornings. 
Maybe you've already engaged in work. To me, one of my favorite moments is we have it's this Hillsong Kids track, and, it, and, and there's this make a joyful noise to the Lord. And it's this guy that's like, and he's just making noise, and it's a preschool track. And I got my boys in the back, and we're making every noise we can. And there's something that takes place in those moments where we find joy. We're about to face the day, and some days are better than others. But when we begin to sing to the Lord, something wells up inside of us. But many of us, we're neglecting this discipline, this practice to find joy. Joy gives. A generous spirit is a joyous spirit. Some of you need to just exercise giving a little bit. It's time to stop being grumpy and, and, and stop being miserable in life and just learn to give. This isn't a money talk. It's a, it's a discipline talk for your life. There's a joy every week when I, and I have mine on auto pay so I never forget. But we have so many opportunities to give and every gift that we give is helping to change lives. There's a reason we're offering camp for $99. It's because we have giving people within our church that are bringing joy and purpose to a kid or a student's life. It's a chain reaction. We can't do this by ourselves. But a giving spirit is a joyful spirit. Second Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. Something happens. There is actual, like, a, a, a side side note here, there is a study that is produced that giving people are actually happier people. If you need a little happiness in your life, just test it. Just give a little. I promise we'll put it to good use. Next one. Joy communes. Joy is found in community. I miss my small group on Tuesday night. I do. Like Tuesdays feel empty now because we're not trucking to Chick-fil-A. I had told Pastor Jimmy, I'm not leading a small group this summer. I just need a break. We're traveling. We got some weddings to do. And then last week I looked at him because Thursday we went to Top Golf with some guys. And, and I said, hey, let's lead, a, let's lead a small group at Top Golf on Tuesdays. Let's do it. Let's, let's make it happen. Why? Because there's something that happens. So it, all you gentlemen, if you need an excuse to break for lunch at 1130 on Tuesdays for the next eight weeks, come because there is joy found in community. Because we can laugh together. We can find peace together. We can walk together on this, on this thing called life that we're not meant to walk by ourselves. Maybe you haven't tried a small group. Learn how to can. Learn how to emergency respond. Like I, there's, there's different groups happening on Wednesday nights. There's a walk in the park on Friday nights. The list is endless. Why? Because other people have found that joy is found in community and they don't want to live life together. Our small groups, we don't pay our small group leaders. We don't even twist their arm. Well, a few of them we may have. But we believe in community and joy is found there. Joy meditates. Our joy is renewed by remembering God and his faithfulness. Psalm 63, 5 through 7. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. Some of you, you've missed out on joy, and it's because you stopped meditating on everything God has done. 
And if he did it once, he can do it again. Joy serves. Serving others will put joy in your heart. Psalm 100, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. And the last but not least, joy enjoys. When is the last time you just pause to enjoy the presence of God? Sometimes church becomes a chore. Our devotional life becomes a chore. But what I challenge you today is to find joy in enjoying God. Psalms 16, verse 11, in thy presence is fullness of joy. See, there is joy found in our following of Jesus. Leaving it all behind, taking up this call that he's placed upon us. See, in the crowds, we find joy in listening and watching Jesus at work. In the 5,000, we experience joy by receiving from Christ. When we receive our miracle, we receive our feeding. In the 70, we find joy in working for Christ. But in the 12, we find joy by walking with Christ. See, there is a decision we have to make today. Will we walk? Will we journey with Him? So I'm going to ask every head to be bowed, every eye to be closed in the room. If you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, I, I need to make a decision to follow Jesus. I need to make a decision that I may have been in the crowds, I may have been in the 5,000, I may not even be anywhere near to proximity of where He is. But today I want to make a change and I want to make a decision to follow Him. Will you just slip your hand up? see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you. Anybody else? I see that hand. Thank you. Anybody else? Make that decision. I see that hand. Thank you. Follow Jesus. Praise God. Can we just say this prayer together? Dear Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my mistakes. Help me to draw closer to you. Help me to follow you. Help me to leave it all behind. And go all in. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give it up for those who made that decision today? Praise God.